Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to episode number 334 of the Nerdist Podcast. Um... Hey, I'm doing stand-up. It'd be really great if you came out to see me uh, in April and May in lots of places like New York at Caroline's on the 6th, 7th, and 8th, and then uh, other places like Denver and Portland and D.C. and Baltimore and lots of places. So uh, go to Nerdist.com slash calendar and come to a show, and we'll meet and say hi. It'll be fun. Oh, and then comedy. There'll be comedy there. I promise. I'd like to thank Stamps.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to print postage on demand for your business or for your personal. Or maybe you want to make it personal but look businessy. Then do that. Be personal but look business. Uh, Stamps.com will print out the exact postage you need every time. It's super easy. Uh, Why go to the post office? Why do things that you hate? Why? I mean, if you hate yourself and want to punish yourself, by all means go to the post office and be like, I so deserve this. But um, if you don't want to do that, then print out the postage from home. Um, Do it without clothes on. Because who's going to know that you printed out postage while you were nude? That's between you and your computer. Uh, boy, your computer probably has a lot of dirt on you. So why not print out postage as well? Anything you need. Right now we have a promo. Uh, we'll, we usually have a promo going because Stamps.com is a longtime sponsor of the podcast. The promo code is NERDIST. There's a no-risk trial. Uh, so don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. That is Stamps.com. And enter the promo code NERDIST. I thank them. This episode is Macklemore. Several, several, several months ago, uh, Skydart and I heard, uh, watched the thrift shop uh, video, and it was the greatest thing that we had seen. And then I sort of went down a rabbit hole of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, and uh, I fucking love all of it. So... Su- Wait, hang on though. Before we saw the video, we saw they did an AMA, and that's how we how we ended up seeing the video. Was that how we? Was yeah, that we they were doing an AMA, and I thought that was really cool. And so I looked them up a little bit more, and and the and this thrift shop came up, and I was like, "That's awesome." You're acting right now like you did an AMA, and you just answered a question. What? <laughs> you didn't ask me anything. You got something in your teeth. Yeah, like enamel. No, it's and... right there. Stop it! No one on the podcast could. No, they're not listening and going, it sounds like he's got some food in his teeth. <laughs> well, let me just get rid of it. No, not while I'm doing Here the podcast. Just reading. stop it. Mom! <laughs> yeah. I'm podcasting, oh, bro. Oh, Sweetie. Come on. <laughs> hey, bro. Are you going to finish this intro or what? Oh, yeah, the intro. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I seem to recall a story where we saw the Macklemore and Ryan Lewis AMA and then went and started watching all the stuff. And uh, and so we had him on, and it turns out he actually listens to the podcast. So it's Nerds Podcast number 334 with Macklemore, which, by the way, you should pick up the album The Heist uh, by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. Thrift Shop, number one on the billboard, no label. You can do it out there, people. You can make your own S&A. Uh, but you should also listen to their other stuff. There's uh, there's a really great song called Other Side, which is, I believe, on the, the Versus Redux, which is uh, an album that, that he and Ryan Lewis did, like, in 2010. Um, so check out all their stuff. Listen to this podcast. I love your pants. Now entering Nerdist.com.
All right. Now it's recording. Now we're being judged. You are, uh, you just flew in and came straight for the airport. I cannot thank you enough. Of course. Thank you for having me. As a frequent traveler, I know that drill, and it's not the most fun thing in the world. So, no, uh, you got like the, uh, it's the air of the airplane that's starting to wear me down. <laughs> it's the dry, recycled. Yes. Weird. I mean, it's kind of TMI, but the dry booger syndrome. Yes. Now, I've known some people who will smear Vaseline inside their nostrils ah. to keep out germs and to I've keep their nose this. wet. But that and I, and seems I've disgusting. And I've it like once and I forgot. And now I will go back to doing it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I don't. I think I would always just be trying to dig it out. Like, nah, there shouldn't be Vaseline inside my you're, nostrils. You're probably right. I can't breathe. Where were you? Where were you flying in from? Uh, actually, for the first time in months, I was home, and I flew from Seattle, Washington. Here, that's a nice flight. Yeah, it was. Um, did you get a, break, a little bit of a break? No. Well, I mean, if you count like. 20 hours is a break, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but uh, no, no break. Just home for a quick second. Enough to do some laundry and get back out. Oh, that's, you know, doing laundry is really, you can go out, you can perform for like 10,000 people. At the end of the day, you still have to do your laundry. In a communal space, mind <laughs> you. <laughs> really? Yes. I'm keeping it real. <laughs> is there, you have, you have like a neighborhood laundromat? That you... uh, no, it's in my building. It's downstairs in the basement. And um, yeah, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit weird doing laundry and getting congratulated <laughs> by the people in your building. Like, oh, congratulations on SNL! Is like you're folding your underwear your downstairs. Underwear. <laughs> I just saw you on SNL. Yeah. Hey, check it out! Uh, Macklemore's in my laundry room folding his underpants. Exactly. That's that's happening. He really is keeping it real. Mm -hmm. Is it good? Is it fun? Is it finally? Because you, I mean, you've been at, you've been at this for like thirteen years. Yeah. So ever since I was a small child. So when it finally all broke, did it feel like yes or oh my god I'm so tired? A little bit of both. Um, and there's so many different times that you can kind of consider it like breaking. Um, the last two months have been crazy, absolutely crazy. But there's so many, you know, you hit these kind of points of success that you're like, okay, now I've finally done what I've always wanted to do. And then two days later, you're like, I need more. <laughs> and it's kind of that like human condition, that, that kind of lack of some sort of spiritual connection where you're always feeling like what you have is not good enough. Sure. And right now I feel great on, in terms of just it's enough. I feel like it's too much. Um, but you know it, it's it's challenging. It's it's adapting to a different lifestyle. It's um, you know being in the public eye and taking pictures when you exit your house pretty much all day long when you're walking around throughout airports and through the mall and getting food and all of that. It's it's a different life than I have been accustomed to the past couple of years. Does it? Do you feel like you're always being judged now? Does it feel a little invasive, or are you pretty? Can you roll with it pretty well? I wear sunglasses more. <laughs> I feel like I'm that I'm that guy that's like you know hiding behind some sort of Ray-Bans, but you know, I what I've learned, what I'm learning is that you just have to have fun with it. Yeah. This could be gone next year. It could be gone in 6 months. You never know. And for for where we're at right now, um it's really exciting. Um Obviously, privacy is an issue that that has changed, but for the most part, it's something that I've worked my whole life to get to. I want to enjoy it. Um, you learn how to operate off of like three hours of sleep or less, and you do your best. I mean, obviously, you know, you you've had, like you said, you've had success all along the way in the last thirteen years. Now it's like mega, mega success. But I think the fortunate thing for you is that you have this thirteen years behind you, yeah, and you have stops and starts and you have stuff to learn from and and because if you were like 20 20 years old and all of a sudden blam, exactly that could fucking kill you thank god i'm 55 <laughs> you look great um, <laughs> you know you're exactly right like and and i probably would have literally died at 20 years old if this if this kind of happened to me overnight um 
And you look at people that do. Can, can I cuss? Maybe say whatever you want. Good. People get fucked up, man. Yeah. Like, it's, um, it's a very vicious industry, and I think that I'm learning that as well. The bigger that you get, the more people are out there judging you. Um, the more love, the more hate that comes with it. It's, um, it's the double-edged sword of success. And, and if I didn't have kind of a, a grounded foundation of who I am as a person, who I am as an artist, what actually matters in life, um, which waxes and wanes, I forget that on a daily basis sure. as well. But at 20, I was, I was a lot um, less rooted in myself as a human. So thankfully, I've got some more years and I could, you know, I can take this in stride as much as possible. Well, and that, and I think that's that's the most important thing because you it, it is, you know, the success thing is a weird is a weird addiction, and you get you get so acclimated to, oh, I know, like you said, I know I want that, but oh, there's other. I mean, do you ever feel like there's a point? Do you need that to continue to be an artist? Do you think you need that kind of drive that there's something that you always need to fill to create more? Ideally, that comes from the art itself. I think the purest place possible is just wanting to make art for the sake of making art. Um, I think that people get the the work, the craft becomes convoluted when your main objective is to match what you sold last time. Now we need to make another thrift shop because we sold right. four million thrift shops. We need to make another one. Um, that's never going to happen. That would be called Sir Mix-a-Lot's Put Them on the Glass. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, come on, man, you got to do one more of those. Yeah. Fuck, really? What's uh, another body part? Uh, um, <laughs> you've already talked about asses. Um, move on to titties. No, I... Yeah, that that's when, that's when the art starts to suffer. And, you know, you, I think all artists go through it, and I think that that's the benefit of not being on a label is that you don't have... Uh, you know, some old white dude in a suit telling you what to rap about because this worked the last time. Yeah. Um, but I think that there is, you know, success drives people. Competition, you know, I'm I'm a rapper. Like hip-hop in particular, MCs are a very competitive species of human being. There's something um, that's very publicly competitive within the sport of being a rapper. You know, I mean, my manager and I, talk about it sometimes it's like i don't know if there's these indie rock guys you know like right now currently there's this list that mtv does every year called you know the hottest mc list and they pick the top hottest mcs in the game right now and this gets the whole industry completely riled up i mean you have kanye who doesn't do any press at all calling into different radio stations debating his place <laughs> at number seven on the list and <laughs> All these different grown men bitching about their spot that, you know, a round table of five people shows their ranking. I don't think that you have indie rock people like sitting around bitching about, you know, some make believe list. They do, they just don't do it publicly. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> but do. it's not public. But as an MC, it's very public. Everything is very much out there. So I think in terms of I can only speak for myself, in terms of a rapper, there is a competition. There is a I want to be the best at my craft. Sure, I, I think it's just male testosterone bullshit. But. Well, it's that. I'm sure it's that. And I'm, but but I think it also has a lot to do with. I mean, when you take any other genre of music, it's very difficult to. It's very difficult to um, make a qualitative judgment and say this band is the best band. But, exactly. But with rappers, there's this. The skill set is so out in front. Yeah. That there is. You you can kind of see a linear hierarchy almost it's of true. you know who's it's doing true. original stuff. So I do understand that, and yeah. but the competition does you know it drives you to make better stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is it? <laughs> I always wonder with with it with a, a hit. This I mean, like thrift shop. I mean, I, I caught it several months ago, and and of course immediately was like, holy fuck! I mean, this it. It just grabs you. That song just grabs you, and the video's brilliant. And even from a comedy, from a comedian standpoint, yeah. I'm like, God damn it. The point of view, like everything, that that song, the subject matter has been right there the whole time, and yeah. no one talked about it. Yeah. And uh, But then I also see the, wow, it gets so huge. Is that, is that sort of haunting in a weird sort of way? Is it daunting because of how big it got? You know, I think it's to be determined. At times, I think it is. Um you never want to be known as the thrift shop sure. guy. And 
to the majority of the world, although we have an album that has done really well and um, for the most part been critically acclaimed and, and got great press and the fans seem to love it and you know the touring is great, all that sort of stuff that's happening outside of Thrift Shop, I'm still known as that Thrift Shop guy by for the majority now. of the world. For but I, I think that can change. I mean, look. You know, Beck could have just been the loser guy, or True. Radiohead could have just been the creep band. Absolutely. You know? But it really is about the body of, or uh, Beastie Boys could have just been the fight for your right to party guys, which you're, was a you're joke. Exa- you're exactly right. So and, and that's you'll what, be okay. So so time will tell, and I think that it comes down to making good music. Now, will we have another song again that goes on to sell four million copies or five million or wherever Thrift Shop stops at? Um, I, I don't even know if I hope for that. You know. Uh, <laughs> Because it does take you to a different level of of pop culture celebrity that you're almost like, did I sign up for the, this? Is what I signed up for? <laughs> right. Um, getting off the airplane and immediately taking fifty pictures the second that I get off. That this is what I wanted. This is this was my idea of success. So I don't know. It, it's a weird world. Thrift shop. It at a certain point it took off and it's not yours anymore. Right. For so long you're in control of like, okay, what am I doing? How am I getting out to the masses? We make this video. All of a sudden the video goes viral and radio gets it. And once radio got it, it it's it's gone, and you don't have any control over your song, and that's kind of a scary thing. But it is pretty. I mean, it's. I think the other truly remarkable thing about it is that, and it should be kind of scary to the music, even, you know, even as I just read an article, like, the music industry didn't go down a bunch for the first time in years and years and years. Like, it kind of went up, like, 0.3%, and that's very positive. Yeah, but yeah. but to see you and and Ryan Lewis come out of uh, Seattle just making stuff that you like making with no label and like oh you're at the top of the charts yeah. and all these people are talking about the song i mean that's that's a that's a great story that's just a great story yeah I, I appreciate it it is a very cool story it's um it's a um it's what you always hope for in terms of picking the independent path like and it's cool to see that that has been a focal point it's not just thrift shop it's this kind of do-it-yourself attitude behind the music that we've made that is also kind of within the midst of this whole thrift shop song that this these two dudes chose to go independently turn down the major labels that the music industry is changing that it's evolving and to be at any sort of place where we're um you know at the forefront of that at the moment is is exciting. Well, that's that's it's so inspiring to so many young people who maybe and I think people are more and more used to the fact that they can just make stuff in their bedrooms and then it can turn out to be exactly. huge. But every time that happens, it's it's that much more inspiring to a younger generation of people who go, you know, I think the the broader message beside just that hey, it's a fun catchy song that everyone loves is like these there's no excuse anymore for you to not go out and make the stuff that you want there's literally no excuse Excellent. absolutely and and that's what you know we watched people that came before us that have done it independently whether it's um sub pop or whether it's um you know last i think it was 2011 it came out but mac miller did it independently and he had every label hollering at him with huge seven-figure offers and turned it down and still went number one on Billboard. There's examples of it um, that came before us that we were like, I think that this can work. I'm not sure if it can work, but at the end of the day, what's the most important? And creative control is number one for Ryan and I, and it's a no-brainer. So even so, obviously, you I'm sure you've been approached a million times at this point, but you still don't want the infrastructure of a label you guys are happy to... Yeah, I mean, there, there's no there's no reason to do it. With the with the power of the internet and with the real personal relationship that you can have via social media with your fans, um, with really, I mean, everyone talks about MTV and, and the music industry or, or the MTV, you know, they don't play videos anymore or whatever. YouTube has obviously completely replaced that. It doesn't matter that MTV doesn't really play videos. It matters that, you know, we have YouTube, and that has been our greatest resource in terms of connecting, having an identity, creating a brand, showing the world who we are 
via YouTube. That has been our label. That's and labels will go in and spend, you know, a million dollars or hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to brand these artists and they have no idea how to do it. There's no authenticity. They're trying to follow a formula that's dead. And Ryan and I, out of anything, I would say that, that we're good at making music, but we're we're great at branding. We're great at figuring out how what our target audience is, how we're going to reach them, and how to do that in a way that is real and true to who we are as people. Because that's where the substance is. That's where the people actually feel that real connection. And labels don't have that. So you sign up for a label. They're not, there's, no, there's not some magic button that now they're going to push and it means that people are going to like who you are or they're going to identify with your vision or your songs. It actually comes from sitting down, staring at a piece of paper for months or years on end, trying to figure out who you are as a person, documenting that on a record and hoping that it connects. But a label's not going to do that for you. No, because they, it's, you know, any any major industry is essentially run by marketing people and they look at, they they look at data points and they don't understand what really makes something, I think they don't really understand, most of them anyway, maybe some do, don't really understand what makes something work. So a, st- a standard, I think, record company or like, a, or like a, a marketing person would look at Thrift Shop and go, oh, so what kids want to hear yeah, exactly. is a song about yeah. buying used clothes. clothes. <laughs> That's what it is. No, God. it's really about these guys who had a story to tell and that was their specific story and you should let creative people be creative. Exactly. And it was something that was completely different than anything else that was out there at the time. And, and that's what radio doesn't understand, that's what labels don't understand, is that the masses, and the masses meaning real masses, the people, um, not, not a niche demographic, not 500 people at a concert, not 1,000 people or even 10,000 people, general pop culture audience, they're not as dumb as we think that they are. Now, sure, they go to the same station and they, and they want to listen to the same four songs every hour and and repeat that throughout their day. But in terms of what those four songs are, there can be a diversity. It doesn't have to, you know, all all kind of go in this in this line of sounding like this the song that preceded it. And that's what people don't get. And I didn't think that Thrift Shop would ever have a chance at radio because of that. I thought the same thing. Um I thought that it was a, a niche song. It was going to hit a certain demographic. That demographic was not going to reach pop culture in the way that, um, you know, a top 40 type of song ever would. And here we are, four million copies later. and <laughs> 140 million views. Yeah. But, but besides that song, I hope that people take time to go down the rabbit hole of your music because there's such great stuff. I mean, I... this. The second video that I saw of yours was Same Love, which is such a great, it's just so nice. I, I, you know, when, when there's so much sort of like posturing and I'm not, and I'm admittedly like not a big hip hop guy, yeah. but it was like, oh, here's a guy who has some people's attentions and he's going to make a song about something that he really cares about, which is like that, like why so much homophobia? Like what's the point of that? And yeah. telling, and, and really kind of shaming people for being homophobic, which is a, it was great, and the song is also just great. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, is it? Do you? Where do you start from? Do you start from the music side, or do you go? Oh, this is something that I really want to talk about. And then does this? Does the music sort of reveal itself to you as to what it should be? It can go both ways. Uh, Ryan and I have, you know, it, it. It just depends on the song. With with same love, I knew that I wanted to address the issue of homophobia, of of equality of same-sex marriage there's all this going on in my head like okay how do i do this as a straight man how do i put this into a song but this is important to me and there's so many hip-hop songs albums out there that are critically acclaimed that are completely flooded with homophobic language that get great reviews and no one ever says anything about it um you know, if there was just some blatant racist out there um, on a hip hop record, 
even if it was a great, even if it was really talented, people would call him out for being a blatant racist. The fact that you can still be in 2013, a rapper, be completely homophobic and no one says anything is insane to me. Um, along with just the ep epidemic of kids getting bullied and in school and committing suicide at the age of like 12 and 13 for who they are. And I knew that I wanted to do it. I didn't know how to write the song. Um, and Ryan had a piano loop. Actually, a friend of mine played a piano loop. His name's Noah Goldberg. And he played this loop and I started and it just kind of wrote itself. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a track. There was no drums. It just kind of came from that. And a lot of times it can come that way usually just from a sketch or just from a concept. Um, thrift Shop I wrote to a different beat, and I had written kind of different Thrift Shop ideas for years before that song actually turned into something. Because um, I knew that I wanted to write a song about thrift shopping. It just happened to come out in 2013. Um, so it, it all kind of changes depending on the song. Yeah. Do you work anything out on stage, or do you, is it all, do you work it out alone and then record it and then, and then perform it? Um, everything is... For the most part, just in the studio or in my house or whatever weird location I'm trying to get inspired. Like with this album, I would go to like graveyards and I would go to art museums and weird places with views and try to catch some holy ghost of a spirit to write <laughs> when writer's block was whooping my ass. But um, yeah, and then we go in the studio, record it, and then it goes out to the world eventually. So that's that's your that's your uh, solution for writer's block is just to change your environment a little bit and kind of I mean, get to some different places. When you have writer's phrases. block, it's like let's let me try anything possible to to break this son of a bitch because there's nothing worse as a as an artist to really hit that point of like I have nothing to say, <laughs> I don't and I have no idea what to do. You know, you like I try to read, I try to have conversations, I take walks, but sometimes it's just it's just not there. It's weird. It's almost like. You get writer's block. Your body wants to say something, but your brain is like, why are you looking at me? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it's, it. It's that frustrating, like, ah, no, I need to. Yeah. Like, you have the need, but then the thing is empty. Yeah, the thing is is empty. And, and it's really frustrating. I mean, the process of being a writer is such a daunting, insecure this kind of love-hate relationship. You know, there's times where you're like, oh my God, I'm a genius. This is crazy. <laughs> but the majority of the time you're like, I fucking suck. And this album is never going to get finished. And I shouldn't be doing this for a living. And I'm not going to be able to do this for a living because no one's going to buy this crap. Um, there's kind of this forever flux of back and forth between those two places. But isn't it kind of comforting to know that almost everyone goes through that? Like, I mean, even at at every level that people don't have the proper perspective on their own work, but you still go, why would anyone, why would I think this would yeah. be something? But, yeah. you, you know, but I think the the people who persevere and put stuff out anyway and try stuff and take risks, I mean, they're the ones who push through. Yeah, I guess there is some comfort in that. I, it It instills some sort of faith within the creative process that this is just, part of the job and the thing that's scary is that you never know how long it's gonna last it's like if, if you knew you're like all right for these three months i'm gonna suck and i'm gonna hate myself <laughs> and i'm gonna be suicidal that's okay if you knew that that would be and then i'm gonna break in and I'm gonna, I'm gonna write an incredible record and it's all gonna be fine and then i'm gonna get back on my game but you never know and i think that as a writer who's been writing you know over half my life it's that that I don't know if I still have it. Like, what if I'm dried up? What if these songs, what, this is it? Um, but I think that that's what, you know, whether it's through the medium of music or whether it's writing something else or, you know, writing a play or writing a script or, or whatever it is, writing is is woven within the fabric of who I am. And if you can let go of kind of like, I need to be writing raps all the time and just write for the sake of writing, that's how I tend to break out of those cycles of, you know, I, I suck at my job. Well, that's the artistic approach as opposed to the famous approach, where the famous approach is how do I recapture the magic and the artistic approach is I just need to keep writing. And exactly. I can, and I can tell you as someone who definitely, you know, deals with anxiety and self-doubt, my unsolicited advice would be don't 
try not to ask questions that start with what if. They're never good questions. They're never good questions. That's true. I should tattoo that (laughs) on my knuckles. Don't ask what if. Because when you ask, you know, your your brain is smart and stupid, I think, which is it's smart because whatever question you ask it, it will paint that picture in your head. And it doesn't matter if it's ridiculous or if it's a real thing or not a real thing, but... What if I never write another song again? And then all of a sudden, this very clear picture of what that looks like just mm-hmm. gets in your brain. Absolutely. But your brain, your brain's just doing its job. It's retrieving information for you. Yeah. And it's such a fear. It, there's so much fear within the process of, of being creative. Um, what, are, what are the people going to think? What, you know, the judgment that comes up of being an artist and... You know, the the best songs are written when you're not thinking about anybody else. They just kind of flow through you. It comes from something much greater than than the pen that's in my hand. Um and yet the criticism and the fear is is, is there and the brain is active and, and I think that it comes down to training the, the brain to be overridden by the heart when you're writing a song. And that's a very challenging process. It's a lifelong process. It's not something that you hit one day and you're like, all right, I'm 29 years old, I figured this out. This is something that takes um, practice and maintenance, really. It's just like a, a muscle. If you don't work it, that fear is going gonna, is gonna to beat you eventually. And I'm sure, you know, as I, I'm sure some people, particularly in our culture, will go, what? Well, what could what problems could that guy have? He's got a hit record now. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but he's still the same guy. Like that didn't, you know, you had you were a person with a with a series of problems or circumstances or good things or bad things, and those those didn't change just because other people were like, "Hey, that's a great, it's a great song." Yeah, and the funny thing is with that is that you know I was always one of those guys. It's like, oh, shut up! You're a millionaire, and you you know have a house, and you have a model wife, and you, you know you drive a Ferrari. Fuck you! Like nothing's wrong with you. Um, not that I have any of those things, <laughs> although my fiance is gorgeous. But besides that, um, there is nothing changes, and that's the that's the weird thing is that you're the exact same person with the exact same set of problems with the exact same set of insecurities. It's just magnified in terms of the public eye. So, yeah. W- I could probably say I was happier six months ago before Thrift Shop turned into this four million, you know, downloaded monster. Um, I'm figuring it out. It's it's like I, I said before. I'm figuring out how to live normally or as normal as I can right now. But the level of scrutiny and the media and all of the criticism that comes with having a song that's as big as Thrift Shop is, is, is challenging. And I'm, I'm learning how to deal with that. And I wish I could say, I don't, I don't read anything. I don't read any of the comments. I don't read any of the press. And, but, you, but I do. And I live in, you live in that world where like all of a sudden it's like having a great day and something pops up on a screen and sweet or something. And, and it's like, oh shit, the uh, such and such just shat all over my entire album. Like, um, well, some people go like, well, don't let that get to you. And you're like, yeah, I know, but uh, the, the 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 double edged sword is that by nature, people who are artistically inclined are more sensitive. We're so sensitive to the world. We're to begin so sensitive. With. Yes, and a lot of what we do is because we're dealing with sensitivity and insecurities or you're able to write a song. You're able to write a song like Same Love because you're sensitive to the world <laughs> and something that's going on. So yeah. when someone gets in your face and they're like, you piece of shit, you how fucking dare, you're like, what What did I do? I'm a guy. I just made a thing. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. But of it, course, in turn, I know that I, we've done the same thing with other people. <laughs> and then you've ruined people's lives. We've ruined people's lives before. <laughs> and, it's a disgusting circle. Continues. You know, you try to take it in stride. And for the most part, I would say in terms of the criticism that comes at me, um, it's fine. Like... There, there's very little that you can say about me that I'm like, oh my god, I had no idea that someone could look at me in that way, you know? Oh my god, he called me Vanilla Ice. My feelings are so hurt right now. Like I, I've, I've heard it all, and it's, it's 
Was the person Vanilla Ice who said that? Vanilla Ice <laughs> called me Vanilla Ice. No, there, there's a series of, of you know things that you hear on a daily basis, and those type of things don't bother you at all. But every once in a while, when it, it will just hit you at a certain time, and it's like, man. And, and depending on the credibility of the person writing, you know, like something coming from Rolling Stone means more than coming from a random blogger, even though that random blogger just so happened to get a job at Rolling Stone. Sure. It's just one person. Sure. Um, but there is, as, as comes the success, there does come the hate, and you try to maneuver through both of it and remain in, in the middle in terms of your ego, in terms of your confidence, in terms of your insecurity, and try to just remain the human that you always have been. And that's the interesting thing about this is that I'm not, you know, living in, in L.A. right now in the mansion. I'm living in the place that, you know, I pay $1,300 $1, a month for a two-bedroom apartment in Seattle. Like, I haven't moved. I'm doing my laundry downstairs. Nothing has really changed. I haven't had time to change my lifestyle. Um, I'm sitting in the middle of, of coach and flying down to L.A. today. It's just everything is the same that it was you know, six months ago. Yet, on this other scale, life is is very different. Well, I think it's important. To, well, first of all, any major change, no matter what it is, if, if there's something horrible or something amazing or someone wins the lottery or they lose a family member or something, any major change is tough for your brain to adjust to quickly because you just, you get comfortable and there are patterns and you get Absolutely. you get into this comfort zone and you start to feel like, okay, this is probably what I deserve. Yeah. And then all something crazy happens. You're like, oh, oh my God, I can't breathe up here. <laughs> it's, it's like being, yeah. it's like being, you know, dragged up to the edge of the atmosphere where the oxygen's light and you're, you get a little lightheaded. That's, you know, that's a good image and it's very accurate. But if you can ride it out, you'll you'll readjust. I, I tend to think that having good personal relationships is part of the key. Is having a nice foundation of people to keep you grounded people that care about you and not about the other stuff, I think that's helpful. Absolutely. That's um, that's number one. And, you know, a as things grow, you, those people in your life are extremely important. Um, they're, they're always important, but you start to feel like, and after I say this, then we can move on to something else. I, I feel like I'm like, Turning into that guy that's like, oh God, look at my life. Like, this no, is no, so hard. But I don't think I don't think it's coming off that at all. I think it's coming off is it, you're you're at a very unique point right now that most people may never experience, and a handful of people have you know have been able to experience. But you know, your world has sort of been upended. Yeah, and it's and you're a human being, and you are just trying to figure it out. And yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I, I what I was gonna say is that I think that. Um, you begin to feel isolated. Um, that friends that you grew up with, even close friends that you still keep in contact with, no one really knows what's going, how you feel. Like, you get it. Um, but you feel like people just don't get it. They, like this is this is something that's very bizarre. It's strange. It's it's not normal life. And who can relate to this? Who can I actually talk to that's going to be able to empathize with what I'm going through right now? I don't know anybody um, that really can. And I it's it's a kind of a lonely place. And that's why the last like 48 hours I've just been like, all right, I'm just going to have fun. And I'm going to laugh about this and not take it too seriously. Um, but yeah, there's times, you know, I mean, just a couple of days ago after like SNL and I haven't slept and I'm in a green room in Colorado and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have no one I can call right now. Like literally in my life, I, I don't know anybody I can call. I'm going to get a hold of my mom, who was like my go-to, yeah. but I have no one, no one that I can call and be like, you know what I'm going through. <laughs> and that's a, that's a strange strange feeling it's weird too because sometimes you're looking at somebody and you're talking to it and you can just see that face they have where they don't aren't able to process that emotion because they've never felt it 
yeah. and you're just like, I know you're empathizing, but you just don't have that software installed to get what this feels. <laughs> the software the installed. Software. <laughs> Good call, Kyle Clark. Thank you. Kyle Clark, big music nerd, huge music nerd. I'm waiting to talk hip hop once we get the emotions <laughs> out the way. Good. How was SNL? Did you have fun? I did. I had, um, it was nerve wracking. I mean, it's live television. It's, it's, and they're crazy because they're running around, you know, doing hair and makeup for everyone there. And all the skits are changing and the sets are changing. And it's, it's very fast paced. Um, and we were, we were actually in a skit that they cut us out of like last minute. <laughs> so that was the perfect like in between of like feeling really relieved and like slightly angry and hurt at sure. the same time. <laughs> but enough like, but it, it turned into just kind of motivation. And we we would have done the skit, got out of our our outfit and gone on stage like I think three minutes. We had three minutes of change. Yeah. So we didn't have to do the skit. So that helped. Um, but I had a really good time. The cast was super cool. Kevin Hart was hilarious. Everyone was, you know, for the most part, um, you know, seemed like they were genuine fans of the music, which tripped me out, um, which I'm sure they tell every guest, musical guest, that they're a fan of them every week. But they seemed pretty genuine, and, and it was a great... I mean, it's SNL. It's like, I can't believe I'm fucking here. <laughs> and it, I'm just imagining the, the studio is a lot smaller than you think it's going to be. Yeah, all TV studios are. I remember going to the prices right a couple years ago and I walked in there and I was like, Whoa. It's really it's, small. It's really small. Like Bob Barker looked like he was in front of like thousands of people <laughs> when I was a kid. Tiny <laughs> studio. Yeah. We do I, I shoot it we do um Talking Dead one floor up from Price's Right, and so whenever we have guests come on, we'll take them down and I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this, but I they, <laughs> they leave the wheel. Yeah, in, in the hallway. Yeah, and so I just I'm like fucking spin the wheel. What do I care? And and it's amazing that that to a person, each one's face just childlike. The, oh, the yeah. wheel Getting is literally to put their hand on it. The yeah. wheel. The wheel is the most famous person they've ever seen. <laughs> it's true. Absolutely true. And it's heavy too. <laughs> it's very heavy. I, I've spun it myself. Or actually, it had like a tarp over it or something, so I couldn't exactly. I kind of like did like a rock back and forth <laughs> thing, but. Yeah, man, the wheel. <laughs> you know, you it's see, like meeting a president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so way then, better. Then you can't. I remember. I remember. You know, just watching Price is Right and seeing some poor soccer mom get up and not be able to get the real wheel all the way around and be like, "Come on, put some elbow grease into <laughs> I'm it." I'm a sick nine year old. I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, "No, the, the wheel's a little heavy." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they make you it got, hard. The key is you got to go up and then yeah. get, get a little momentum. momentum. Going. Yeah. yeah. What do you? What do you? Is there, is there anything that you do for yourself? Do you do you have a? Do you play games? Do you have a hobby? What do you? What do you like to do? Watch prices, right? You do 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 you do do do. Um, what do we do? Uh, I travel. <laughs> I um. No, I mean, I mean, really, you know, I. We have very little free time right now. Sure, of course. But any time that's downtime, I like to hang out with my fiance, just chill out, catch up on life, get some rest, kind of recuperate. Um, you know, I mean, just typical stuff. There's nothing really crazy that I do at this point in my life. Seattle's a great town. Yeah. I'm, like mad, I'm mad at your weather a lot of the time, but I love Seattle yeah, the weather as a city. Is, uh, it's horrible, man. And even coming down here... <laughs> And coming down here, and it's actually overcast today, which I'm like, fuck you, L.A. The one day that <laughs> it's been here, great this yeah, whole rest of this time. Like, and it always days, is. Two days, it's a little cloudy. <laughs> but we were um, we were living, uh, or we stayed here for the month of January. Um, and I really, really like this place. I, uh, you know, you, you realize why everyone gets famous and moves here. Or moves here and then gets famous. Yeah. It's, it's the shit. The weather's incredible. It is, but Seattle has such a, I mean, we sort of, you know, if you, if you look at Silver Lake Echo Park, we have a little bit of Seattle-esque culture mm. here. Except they're but, smarter in Seattle than in Silver Lake. <laughs> yeah, <they're>, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely take that, smarter. Silver Lake. <laughs> well, yeah. Whoa, take it easy, Kyle. I have a bowling team based oh, in Silver true. Lake. Uh, um, with Echo Park then. <laughs> yeah, fuck Echo Park. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, Bumbershoot. Is I've I've done Bumbershoot like the comedy stage like three yeah. or four times yeah. and that festival is such, such a good vibe to it. Yeah, absolutely. Bumbershoot is um, you know, a huge festival that we I, you know I grew up going to. Um, 
I don't know how many thousands of people go to it, but it occupies the Seattle Center, which is the kind of the downtown area. And uh, yeah, great energy, great vibe. We used to sneak in as kids. That was the whole kind of like mission of the year was like how you were going to sneak in a bumper shoot. With your malt liquor in your backpack, how are you going <laughs> to sneak in to bumper shoot? You're going to penetrate the perimeter. Yes, exactly. Now there, there, I mean, there was like some very MacGyver-esque moves pulled to get into the grounds of bumper shoot. I almost feel like there should be an allowance that if you can figure out a way to get in, then security's like, you made it. You got it. <laughs> Good for you. You got you get, it. You get to stay. You you hit a certain point. You hit a finish line, and all of a sudden, you can drink your malt liquor as a fifteen year old, and you're fine. <laughs> you see all these There's other no laws. You for see that. you like see all hours. these other like feral teens like caught in the barbed wire, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just grabbing their backpack and supplies and tearing them. If you make it. You get to stay. I completely agree. Who was the act that you were like, all right, we got to figure out about bolt cutters. We are getting into this. Oh, man. You know, the, I don't know exactly if there was like ever one act. Well, there was Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang was there, but that was later in life. I could actually afford a ticket at that point. The first concert that I remember going to was George Clinton. Ooh, oh, yeah. Funk That's All-Stars a good way to start. At Bumper Shoot. And I got very high on contact as a small child. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a... I saw that show. I saw his show once. And it's... (laughs) We were shooting it for something. And they go... uh, So the band's going to play for a while. And then George just comes out whenever he feels like it. (laughs) There's like the guy in the diaper. And and then literally like 35 minutes in, (laughs) then George just came out and mumbled something to the microphone. I don't know. Yeah, George Clinton does whatever the fuck he wants to do. It's one of those genius anomalies in music where you're just like, this guy got away with this crazy plan. And yeah. like, we'll just all look real crazy and I'll sort of front this, but sort of have a nebulous I'll put, I'll put job. all of my friends on three buses <laughs> and we'll just be this caravan of fun. <laughs> we'll be funky gypsies people. forever. It's yeah. true. It's like the ultimate kind of fantasy escape music. <laughs> I mean, and, and great and, gra- and a great sound. And a sound that he invented, but you know the fact that he's like got to be like seventy or yeah, he's up there, still doing the same shit, the same amount of drugs, yeah. if not more. And anytime you can have a band where Bootsy Collins is the second craziest person in the group is really impressive. Absolutely, I just get the image that George Clinton just sires this weird pyramid scheme <laughs> of children. Like there's this this weird, they live on a <laughs> compound somewhere. That may not be the case, but it just feels like he is the. He is the sort of uh, uh, the the figurehead of this, you know, elaborate oh, mafia yeah. of yeah. funk. That, uh, exactly. Maybe I he, love that he had two bands at one point so that he could make twice the money on two labels. <laughs> that he had Parliament and Funkadelic, so he was just gaming the system. Yeah, pretty smart. I, for, for some reason, just on a weird, uh, almost unrelated side note, I could not get the song Motown Philly out of my head this morning. Oh. It got trapped. Oh, and I even turned on like Jurassic Five. <laughs> In the car to try to flush it out. It doesn't work. And it didn't work. No. But now, I love Now that's definitely going to be in my head for the rest of the day. I'm so sorry. Well, here, I'll do that one Jurassic 5 guy. Who's the guy that talks down here like this? I always just wait for his parts to come on. With the super deep voice? Yeah, the super deep voice. Yeah. Kicking the rhymes in the super deep time. It's like, I fucking, it just comes out of nowhere. And even though I know it's coming up, I'm always like, it's a him. Like, I get so excited. There was even one song where, like, someone's talking and then the phone rings and they pick up. And on the other end, he's like, kicking the rhymes in the super deep time. <laughs> and, then they, and it was him rapping on the phone as the other side of the phone call. That <sighs> <sighs> made me so happy. Who do you still? Who, who do you like now that Voice you're listening to? Voice. Oh, that's great. it. No. Uh, who do I? Who do I like now in terms of? Yeah. Music? What are you? What are you listening to? Uh, what am I listening to? Uh, Kendrick Lamar is, um, you know, I think right now the best rapper in in the game in terms of list. That record's almost annoyingly good. Yeah. Because you, like, I don't know, like, I feel like there's that certain like. If you really like something and everybody says how good something is, you want to be the one pulling away. And then, but that's one of those goddamn records where, no, it is the all of this hype is is warranted. It is that good. Exactly. I mean, he made a conceptual album that is a story and a narrative and documents his life in a way that, you know, if you go through kind of the criteria of what makes a good writer, what makes a good rapper, he's fitting somebody that can write hooks that has melody. 
he's kind of hitting every single um, point of criteria with flying colors. It's just an incredible record. Um, that's my favorite one of 2012. What else am I listening to? I've actually, it sounds kind of cliche, but I've been going back and listening to a lot of, um, you know, 90s hip hop. I'm not really like somebody that lives in like, oh, 1994, like nothing compares to 1994, <laughs> kids. Like, I'm not really that guy, but I have It was all been, over after This Is How yeah, We Do It. Exactly. <laughs> after Montel, nothing was the same. <laughs> I so wanted to make a terrible parody video where I was just goes... This is how to do it. And then just like a Howdy Doody puppet on a loop for an hour on YouTube. Just an hour. Just to, where people watch for like 30 minutes. They're like, he can't keep this up for another 30 minutes. This is how to do it. Just over and over again. That was something Mike Furman and I wanted to do. I wish we had done it. It's that's not a, too late. That's so funny. You, you grew up in Seattle, so that you're this sort of like counter movement to what people perceive to be yes. the Seattle music scene. Yes. There's actually this hip hop underbelly. Yes, I am a white guy. I should be listening to Alice in Chains. <laughs> um, yeah, you know... Obviously, Seattle grunge, growing up in Seattle, I mean, in the 90s, it was the mecca of grunge. It was what you were supposed to like, and I just was listening to Snoop Dogg instead. I don't know exactly how it happened, but, um, yeah, there, the culture in Seattle, and still, I mean, the the indie rock that comes out of Seattle now is, you know, some of the best indie rock in the world. Agreed. Um, the grind. I don't know what it is. I don't know what exactly it is about Seattle. We we have a long lineage of great musicians from Quincy Jones and Jimi Hendrix to, you know, Kurt Cobain and Sir Mix-a-Lot and all the indie rock in between. So. I think it's because Seattle is a it's a dramatic city. It's there the, there's you can sort of feel the emotional core of Seattle when you're there. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's where it's situated on the water, and yeah. it's... I don't know what it is, but... We're, we're just depressed. <laughs> we have people make good There's a good lot artists. of yeah. shit you guys got to work out. Exactly. If we you lived so in Los sad. Angeles, yeah. the weather's great. Nah, we're around women and beaches and dog parks <laughs> We get and very shit. little done here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think you need... You guys are so tan. <laughs> <laughs> this is tan? I'm almost fucking transparent. I'm the whitest... <laughs> I'm like one of those fish where you can see their skeleton inside. <laughs> I feel like a guppy. But uh, uh, it's. It, do you think you need struggle and pain? Do you think that drives art? Or Yes. I, I, I mean, I don't think you need it. I think that it helps write certain types of songs. Um, I've never, like when I'm super happy and I'm like, life is awesome. I'm usually not like, let me find a piece of paper and write about how awesome my <laughs> life is. Do you allow yourself to be happy? Uh, that's a good question. I, I would like to say yes. Um, you know, I've, I've had it in, in terms of happiness. My life has been, a, you know, I've, I've been for the most part sober now for the last four years. Congratulations. Thank you. And up until that point, you know, it was always substances were kind of dictating where I was at on the happiness scale. Um, you know, kind of where I was in terms of the high or the drunk or whatever it might have been. And um, for the most part, I consider myself a happy person. I think that as we were talking about the brain earlier, it's, um, it's, it comes down to us for the most part. And it does take a certain level of training and a level of gratitude for wherever you're at in life to be grateful for that moment. And, you know, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche and hippie, but that's kind of the philosophy that I subscribe to in terms of, um, you know, my spirituality and in terms of really being happy and in terms of having a level of happiness that is lasting, that's not contingent upon um, a good review or a good song that I'm writing or a good interview or a good show or whatever. It's just a general acceptance of this is the now, I'm learning from this, and I'm I'm progressing as a person and I'm enjoying it as I go through it. Um, but there's definitely times where life sucks and those are all the records that you end up hearing on the album. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your pain is our gain in terms of uh, fantastic music. Thank you for <laughs> suffering. <with that. laughs> yes. Well, I know, I mean, you know, people are sick of hearing me mention this on the podcast, but I'm I'm sober too and I've been sober for a long time and, and I remember those moments of... 
using, you know, in my case, it was just a lot of alcohol to suppress not just bad feelings, but good feelings, too. Yeah. Like, just to not feel anything. Anything. Exactly. Like, getting off stage and feeling great, and then the immediate, the first thing you want to do is numb that feeling. And you're like, why do I, I, I feel great. Like, I have all these endorphins pumping, and I'm, you know, I feel vibrant and full of life, and I've just performed in front of X amount of people, and life is good, and I, I want to not feel this why is that what's going on with me um so my life has been kind of this roller coaster of of going in and out of that and um you know eventually leading to deep dark isolated depression in a in a shitty apartment four years ago where i was like i should probably get some help yeah and you did and i did good good and you feel and you feel a lot better now yeah absolutely and i wouldn't be here i wouldn't you know, you wouldn't know who I was if if I wouldn't have gotten sober. There was no, uh, there's no middle ground. There was no like, oh, I can kind of write music when I'm fucked up. It was like, no, I'm, I'm smoking weed and playing at PlayStation and jacking off and taking a nap. I think <laughs> sounds like a full day. Yeah, it is. Well, over think- and over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I think that's also an important message for young artists because I think there is this mythos of like. You know, the artist has to be fucked up to open up their mind, man. Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, you know, it's I, I think what a lot of people don't see is that it's not just like, oh, you're going to get really fucked up and then just roll over and scrawl something in a notebook. Like it takes work and there's discipline and you absolutely people, you know, people don't see they're never going to see the amount of work that you put into stuff or the amount of, you know, emotional labor that you put into things. But you really need all of your faculties to maintain that level of energy. Yeah, no, I the people that do get fucked up and roll over and write songs, I do not understand that. Like, I, I literally cannot comprehend that. You're right. It, it's the amount of discipline and structure and just clocking hours and focus it takes to write songs and make a, an album um, where you have a bunch of shitty songs and you let those go and you keep the good ones. And it takes so much time, energy, patience, dedication to the craft that maybe I just am a, am a stupid drug addict. I, that's probably it. You know, I, I just, everything just shuts off. There's no creativity. There's nothing that's spawning like, okay, now I feel like I can do this better. It's like, no, I, I just really need to to sleep. And I think <laughs> some of it's that myth that gets created because it's a lot sexier to show a guy who rolls over and is just brilliant. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But even in that case, like, you're not looking at the... 15 hours they're spending writing on something and Absolutely. throwing things away. And so I think it's easy for people going into creative fields to go, well, you just sort well, of work on it. Yeah, but I, I think people don't, I think it's almost not a romantic idea of art that it's a job. Yeah. That there's a jo- that there's a process to it, that it should just feel like this fucking bolt of lightning just strikes out of nowhere because you're just a creative storm. It's yeah. like, no, 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 you have, think- to, you have to write... You have to, in most cases, I feel like I'm guessing you got to write like 50 shitty things before that one thing. Exactly. That's exactly it. And uh, yeah, drugs just, you know, fucked up my storm, man, for a really long time. Well, the good news is for you is that you realized that while you were young, you know. I did. It took me a really long time to actually live that. And, and, and get the tools that I needed to stay sober. But I did, I mean, I knew it from the very beginning. I knew it from the fucking first time that I got drunk. I was like, whoa, okay, like, like I can't stop. Like, like that a little too much. People. Um, yeah, do you, do you remember talking to people and they would go, I just don't feel like, dude, they'd stop after a drink and you're like, how, how do you do that? Yeah, how do you do that? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole stack of beer here. Why would you not Why want that you in have, your tummy? Exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, the fact that you were able to do that at 25, not a lot of people, I think, you know, it, it would, you're just, I'm very happy for you and you're very lucky that it was when you you didn't wake up at like 52 and be like, ah, shit. Yeah, I wasted a lot. I mean, and, and even at 25, I wasted a lot of life and you look at, um, you know, it, it again, everything I believe turned out the way it was supposed to for me, but, um. You know, there, there's a lot of my 20s that I was not coherent for and that I don't remember shit, even, you know, even my teenage years. And I remember my mom, you know, telling me as I was, you know, getting busted for 
smoking weed as a as a high school kid, you know, like one of her greatest regrets is that she just doesn't remember her life. Um, and that it wasn't that like, you know, weed is bad or that drugs are bad necessarily, but you want to be able to be coherent. You want to be able to feel and experience what this life is without having to numb yourself all the time. Cause really it's just kind of a blur from 15 to 25. Sure. I mean, I remember sp- sp- specific things, but it's, um, there's there's a fog over it, and I don't want to live my entire life like that. Well, I don't think it's... A, I mean, I know I've said that before, too. Like, oh, I wasted my 20s. And like, yeah, but if you had to go through that experience to become the person you are... Exactly. You know, and in your case, let's say you, you know, you write... A, and this is going to get super schmaltzy in Pollyanna, and I apologize. But let's say that got you to a point where you write a song like Same Love, and it completely changes someone's life. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of like, well... Maybe that wasn't wasted. Maybe I, you know, like maybe there was a process that I needed to go through to be able, like it, then it's, you know, you're here now and you're still only 29 and it's it's good. It's just it's it's good. That's exactly. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think there's a catch 22 to it where it's like you can't live in that, but the experience you get of having the hindsight of having experienced it also changes you. I think True. in a very dramatic and positive way. True. That it's almost you have to go through that bad to get to a more complete person. I always yeah. say no one became interesting by not fucking up. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, sometimes if you meet people like, everything's great. Yeah. I don't get that. Well, really? How, what, what were you doing that whole time? <laughs> yeah. What's going on in your head? Is there a <laughs> puppet show happening? <laughs> always? <laughs> this is a, a delightful puppet show. So what's what's next? You're just sort of in the you're in the eye of the, you're in the storm right now. I'm in the storm. Um it's just a bunch of shows and press and and trying to, um, you know, we, we started to get, you know, because you, Thrift Shop starts to take off and it starts, you know, four months ago or something. Starts to, you know, the radio stations start picking it up. YouTube plays start creeping up. You're like, oh, we're getting, you know, 500 100,000 hits a day. This is crazy. Oh, you get that montage like from that thing you do where it's like number 10, number 8, yes, number 1. Exactly. <laughs> so that starts happening, you know, four, four months ago, five months ago. And, um, you know, then you start getting offers to do shows. And, you know, us were like, we got to get it. Well, it's good. Yeah. We'll take every, you know, if, if the money's where it should be, then we'll take every single show. We pretty much booked 2013 four months ago um the year is like done literally like i can we have like two weeks of free time in the entire year wow so it's nothing there's a lot of college shows um there's a lot of uh festivals going over to europe um we just got back from new zealand and australia um everything at this point is pretty much just performing for the rest of the year and you know a lot of cool opportunities i'm sure will pop up as well um in terms of um, award shows and you know SNL type stuff, um, TV type opportunities, but everything is pretty much performance from here on out. Wow, that's comforting, and I would imagine a little like ah at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely a little. Uh, I mean, y- you want to live. Uh, you know, normal people go home at five o'clock, <laughs> maybe six, and they don't have to work on the weekends, and you know. Um, they have a normal existence with dogs and cats and shit, and they get to walk those dogs, and they get to hang out with their significant other, and not only talk about you know everything that is Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, and um, you get to take the fiance on the road. Yeah, she's behind me right now. It's usually a publicist sitting behind. It's usually yeah, right. a publicist sitting behind. And then she also had her phone. And I'm like, oh, she's got a lot of clients she's working with back there. <laughs> she must be really expensive. She's, you carry she's, yourself very professionally. She is a, she's a good publicist accompanies you to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever have that moment where you're just like eating cantaloupe and you're in New Zealand backstage about to go on? And you're just like, how did I have a two-bedroom apartment in Seattle? Like, when did this happen? Yeah. And cantaloupe too. Yes, you're right. The green rooms, man. Yeah, they all, they all, they all cantaloupe. 
um, and peanut butter and jelly. Keeps, yeah. Um, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly, some waters, a couple Perrier's. Yeah. Hey, that sounds like a writer. <laughs> actually, exactly accurate. I had a, my, my comedy writer, like, I don't know, someone put all this crazy shit in it. So it was like, I would show up to these places and there would be like a deli tray for 30 people. And I'd be like, this is, I'm not eating I'm by this. myself. Please don't waste all this meat and cheese and grapes. Like, give it to somebody. Yeah. So I finally, like, I finally was like, please take that out. I just want water. Just a water. Is that, is that your writer? That's, that's it. it. Water. Just water. Just water's fine. You boring bastard. I am so boring. Yeah. I am so you boring. You should do something exciting on it. Like, I want snack a random there. Nintendo cartridge available in the back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, like, you know, go dig up one of the E.T. games. Exactly. <laughs> and then just have it. Yeah, that's a good oh, idea. All those Tiger video games available in my green room. I, I would like some, uh, a couple, I'd like six bottles of water and a flautist. <laughs> the Stooges have a Bob Hope impersonator is on their rider. They need a Bob Hope impersonator backstage. Do you think that's just to see if they'll People do it? If attention. anybody will ever do that. Be fair, that. if you do, you win. If you don't, that's insane anyways. And then the and then the guy in that town who's the bubble is like, yay, I get to work today. <laughs> Until then, it's nothing. But uh, it was really nice talking to you. Yeah, this was an absolute pleasure. Too, and I and again, I know I understand the travel drill, so I know that coming here straight from the airport, it is not the most uh, fun thing to have to do in the world. But I appreciate it, and I know that people are gonna love to. You know, I think the other fun thing is that you know people see your work on YouTube and. I think it's nice to hear you talk like a person and, you, yeah, and yeah. Like it sort of humanizes. I don't know. I just think it's I think it's nice and I think people will dig it. No, I appreciate it. So it, it's, um, you know, I'm a fan of the podcast and, and you guys are awesome and appreciate you having me. Well, thanks, man. Um, have uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. And thank you for uh, and I'm sorry. I thought you were a publicist. You should marry that publicist. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do it now. Oh, my God. Hey, publicist. <laughs> Will you marry me? Uh, we can't. We have an interview at five. Uh, <laughs> you're good. You're good. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.